Ladies and gentlemen, I always feel really silly saying that, but you know, I'm making assumptions about our listenership. Yeah, I they guess. may not be gentlemen. Yeah, exactly. They may not. Um, uh, welcome to uh, another conversation that is not happening in the Dissect Podcast Studio. We're actually on the road this time. Have with me today frequent Dissect Podcast guest, Mr. Joel Holmes. It's almost as if he lives in Salt Lake City, but he does not. Just my van. Just yeah, your van does has recently. <clears throat> what are we charging you for that anyway? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. I'm gonna, I'll wait for the invoice. I'll, revo- I'll revoke your employee of the month certificate that I gave you in February. Yeah. And uh, I thought that was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was the prize. You could park here. Um, and we're also joined, or we're joining, actually, Mr. Keel Reinen, um, who races bikes for, I'm going to say, a living. i am alive and race bikes yeah exactly (laughs) so racing for the track segafredo this year at a uh, a world tour level and when i get my terminology wrong joe you correct me keel don't just you just laugh in the background (laughs) yeah for those who are not into cycling it would be the the nfl uh, or nba league yeah um and so the the you guys are in Utah for the altitude, I'm guessing, and the glorious weather that we are having now for skiers. The, there's something that uh, about Utah that is definitely you know draws uh, me back. I, I mean, I I really do like being outdoors here, and the <coughs> sort of the whole spectrum of. Um, geography you know from from southern utah we've we've raced through zion national park oh, and yeah. bryce canyon and then we've come up to sort of more uh, i don't know high altitude higher plains, altitude air to, yeah. you know areas to the north that are sort of devoid of everything and you know those are really beautiful landscapes in their own right because it's just vast and empty and those are things you don't <coughs> see a lot in racing in europe um, yeah. so you know, I know my, my European teammates are always sort of in awe of how much wilderness type of, yeah. Even when it's not like, sort of that scenic, you know, mountainous area that we picture, you yeah. know, just the fact that it's devoid of everything is fascinating to them. That there's, there's no development because the history is short yeah. enough. And the, like the area we're, we're sitting in now, it, it's, you know, it, it does. It looks like a slice of Switzerland. It's it's incredible. <laughs> there is that uh, that vibe on Main Street here in Midway. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> there, some friends of mine came over in 2000 or 2001, and we took them down to Moab. And uh, they're walking around, and, and one of them, the guy goes immediately, he's like, no wonder you don't recycle here in the United States. He goes, look at all this, like, wilderness and, you know, untainted sort of... Uh, you know, these wild areas and this big giant blue sky and there's no development and like you haven't trashed it yet. Once you've destroyed this, 
you'll start thinking about the environment a little bit more. I was like, Whoa, <laughs> that reminded me, my daughter, uh, <laughs> she's, she's a little too clever for her own good. And, uh, she asked a lot of really good questions the other day. I was, uh, putting some things in the trash and then I said, I was going to take the trash out. And she asked, well, where does the trash go? And I said, well, it goes, you know, in the trash can. And then she says, and then the trash man or, you know, the trash, uh, garbage truck comes and, and picks it up. I said, yeah. And then she said, well, then where does it go? Well, then it goes to uh, a landfill or collection site, and then then it probably gets barged to to China, and uh, where they feed the whales. Yeah, and you know we <laughs> pretend like it disappears, and it's <laughs> kids ask some hard questions. Yeah, no kidding. We we could ask that of just about anyone walking down the street and they would not be able to answer in such a clear way either like yeah. oh no it just goes away yeah convenient Good. the convenient truth yeah yeah we'll start we should start making islands out of it to create more real estate i uh heard that that had been tried i, I want to say it was in the netherlands or something like that oh really they, they did yeah they did try and and turn a landfill into a man-made I don't remember if it was an island or a peninsula, but that's a thing. <laughs> and then they heard about the Love Canal. <laughs> so, and people thought we were going to talk about bike racing. Well, we I'm going <laughs> to we don't actually have to do that, except I'm going to I'm going to accidentally try again. Um, so the uh, the reason I wore my pit vipers today is because when I first got them. Um, I got to, I have to put them back on now. Just, you know, I was like total buzz number two cut and, and you know, those glasses don't go good with short hair. And I was just like, all right, I'm going to grow a mullet so that I can actually wear these glasses and not, you know, feel such shame. And I could get there now if I just chopped the top, but, and then Joe told me, he's like, you know, Keel's starting, he's rocking a pretty damn good mullet these days. And yeah, it's getting, which, it's getting which, long. Which is, it's, it's, it's cool flow, out, you know, from behind the helmet. I dig that for sure. Um, but, but it's not, it's true. It's not something that you see, certainly in your, you know, in the pro peloton that much. Guys with long hair, beards the last two years, yeah. for sure. But, uh, um, and so I started reading, you know, reading a little bit and, and, uh, and then, you know, Joe made the joke about living in a trailer and I was like, man, I thought those guys made bank. <laughs> and then they told me that the name of the road you lived on is welfare and hence the joke he lives in a trailer on welfare yeah there's and lots of irony th th there's, there's all of these stereotypes so much and i'm just like okay this keel doesn't really fit in you know because i i'd look at i mean especially if, if i'm like see a picture of you and the next thing or you're uh, you know on your bike or whatever and then the next thing is a one of those um, that shampoo commercial with Marcel Kittle in it. I'm like, and everybody is just so cleanly shaven and perfectly quaffed. And I go, man, Kill looks more like he might like kick a hacky sack and ride a mountain bike. <laughs> <laughs> and in the video on the, you know, the Trek video that dropped today, you were wearing plaid. I, that might just be a Northwest thing though, right? It's definitely a Northwest <laughs> thing, but I, yeah, I definitely fall into that stereotype. <laughs> So how did, how did you evade, you know, baggy clothes on a bike and, 
Well, you know, knee pads. First, I'll I'll <laughs> say that like any sport, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, salaries are oftentimes top heavy. Uh, sure. That being said, uh, you can certainly make a living doing this, and a lot of my uh, choices are lifestyle choices. So it's. Um, you know, having done this as a career for 10 years, I don't know that I would condone any young people trying to do it as, as a career, but you can. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, and I, I think that the, the world of, of bike racing or probably any you know, sport can be all-consuming and, and feel oh, yeah. um, like it's your entire identity and uh, about halfway through my career i think i took a step back and uh, realized that it was important to have an identity beyond just being a bike racer and i made a point of you know pursuing more hobbies um nice. doing things that weren't necessarily the things that my peers were we're doing or partaking in and to make sure that I um, had my own sense of identity and my own sort of self-worth aside from the sport. That's um, remarkable wisdom actually, because when you do get caught up in it, I mean, a lot of think of unfortunately what happens um, with athletes actually i was i sat in now must be the end towards the end of 2015 um uk sport was holding a you know sort of three or four day seminar um and i was over in london working and this friend of mine ben saunders was speaking and so he invited me to come out and we kind of had a little q a at the end of it um but it was a th this panel was to teach you know guys people who guys and gals you know who were active at a you know at a national international level in sport um in the uk how to transition Mm -hmm. out you know what happens after um you know one of the rowing phenoms she had been she was on her way to i think to her fifth olympics or something i'm just like well she doesn't need this because she's never going to retire apparently she's that good but there were other people there who were you know had like five or you know four or five year careers whatever maybe one olympics maybe two and then they had to go out and you know get re released into the wild essentially and yeah. they were teaching them skills to use and i think that's something that um that the transition away from being an athlete especially as a professional um is super fucking difficult if you if that's all your identity is tied to yeah i think there's there's certainly um a, a type of arrested development that occurs amongst athletes where you begin a transition in your mid to late 30s that most of your friends went through in their early to mid twenties. And that's not easy. And, and we're not yet yeah, always uh, equipped with the skill set. And then you're also, you're so used to being, um, what's the right way to say it? Looked after. Yeah. Looked after, uh, and, and attentions put on you and, uh, there's, there's pressure, but it's a different type of pressure. It's not about being self-sufficient it's about performing and being good at one thing yeah there's there's not an emphasis on being well-rounded or uh versatile 
it's it's about you know executing your your task and your sport and and executing it well so that's and then that, and having all the infrastructure around you to so that you can do it you know on the day that you know on demand yeah and, and and that sense that it's important when yeah. there's certainly an argument to be made that what we do matters in some way but it also doesn't in a lot of ways you know it's that could be said for many professions sure sure right totally <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> uh but you know and, and and to be clear like i love what i do and i hope it inspires people and i hope it brings some something good to somewhere yeah uh but i'm not curing cancer you know per se so <laughs> uh you know not let's that one fundraiser keep it ride. in perspective like, yeah <laughs> i mean like there, there's certainly good things that come out of this sport and and a, an amazing community of of people you know, I know that um, the fact that I've been able to kind of go all these different places in the world and I'm always comfortable because I always have a group of friends because they ride bikes. That's that's hugely important. And it's a it's a gift and it's wonderful. And I think cycling has made a lot of great contributions uh, to the world we live in. But uh, I also know that it's it is just racing bikes at the end of the day. And there's there's plenty more that you know, we can do with our lives. It'll be a really neat thing, though, in the future to, you know, if you've stopped racing, that you will have all those friends in all those countries. And when your daughter wants to travel, yeah, you know, there'll, there'll always be kind of a, lo- you know, some local person that, that you know, some, or, or places that you've, I mean, the, the traveling aspect of it is pretty damn cool in, in the sense that you, um, yeah, you get exposed to stuff that otherwise you wouldn't. And the fact that uh, I've found at least that uh, one of the best ways to learn about a new place is to just go on a bike ride. Yeah, absolutely. You see, okay, maybe when you're at a race, you don't really see much of anything that's outside of that bubble of the actual race. But, you know, if you go for training or you take the time outside of the confines of the race it's you know you see these little towns that most people don't have never even heard of even here in the u.s you know and it's like oh yeah i've been to that place or uh check out this aspect of that place well how do you know about that yeah there's a there's a larger metaphor here that i'm unable at this particular moment in time to articulate but (laughs) you know walking is too slow a pace to see the world you know you're not going to get there in the the time we have on this this earth it'd be the the world would be fairly small yeah and driving and flying you pass by the the moments and memories and places that will have a lasting impact it's it's too fast and riding a bike is just the right speed you get to see all these nooks and crannies and uh, you know explore towns and get a feel for places and neighborhoods uh, in a way that you just you can't any other way and and you're all more of your senses are sort of activated i mean did did uh tour california go through any of the burn zones this year no but i actually did ride there before uh tour california started we had a okay a small um camp to test some equipment and we were in santa rosa right okay on the outskirts there and you know obviously some large uh 
acrid zones there, yeah. Burning in your lungs, yeah. probably. And and still in, you know, recent memory. So there's uh, and I have friends that live there, so um it was definitely impactful to to see that. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, um we're sending our the next issue of our zine to print this week and we have an article from a friend of ours who um who used to live out sort of uh Malibu area and uh, he went out on a surf trip surf was shit so he walked around to shoot some pictures and uh he was just like man uh it's uh it's pretty heavy yeah i just and, keep i think back to the you know Mahon drive was when i was there in march completely closed to traffic from pch uh, got through on my bike and up towards the top where kind of ends and all and that comes together there was just this this completely burnt out remains of a car just on the side of the road with just scorched earth behind it that was just there <laughs> and it was just like yeah some of the, some of the pictures that eric took um i'm just like oh my okay so here's here's a house standing still appears yeah. to be untouched here's a foundation and wow there it, it yeah super i don't really want to go ride out there again for a while we actually <laughs> lived in boulder when the the big fires came through there and uh we were on the north end just up against the foothills so we, yeah. we were evacuated and our house is fine but um we uh, we watched the you know chaos and destruction that the the fire caused. Every every once in a while, you know, Mother Earth reminds us that we're not as all powerful as we'd like to believe. <laughs> I had that conversation this week about Mother Nature <clears throat> expressing her displeasure of it just just has to do with the highest mountain on Earth, and you know <clears throat> maybe. Uh, you know, as a specific geographic location, if you assign some sort of level of sentience to the mountains, which I did during my climbing career, certainly, um, like, okay, tell you what, I'm, I'm okay with 240 of you running a train on me, but I'm taking 10 as a human sacrifice. Nobody really appreciates my opinion on that, but. You run out of oxygen. The one guarantee is you just stop breathing. But yeah, I think you know. Anyway, I, 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 I wasn't a climber, but I do think a lot about uh, the mountains. You know, when we were up riding, and then we we went yesterday up into the um, Uinta. I hope that's yeah, the Uintas. Yeah, Uintas. Um, and it's it's awe inspiring on, on one hand and it is so it sort of uh, puts you in your place, I guess, on the other hand, and you feel small and uh, insignificant when you're standing beneath those, you know, huge glaciers. And Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it, it's, it's crazy the the sort of the difference that, well, I lived in, in Chamonix in France for, five years full time. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of time in the Alps. And then, uh, when I went back, I, um, on different jobs, I'd always take a bike 
and ride around and I have a, you know, different, it's, there's no less awe being on a bike in those mountains than there is being on foot and hoping to climb them. Um, but it, it, uh, it's a, it's a very different feeling like, oh man, I'm not going to get swatted down. Yeah. You know, here I'm going to, you know, there, yeah, there's, and there's going to be stuff that just, um, you know, unfortunately in, you know, in the mountains, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm unable to climb on a bike, especially if I'm on my road bike in Europe. I mean, and I always, you know, chose the junior gears. So essentially, right. But that, you know, that <laughs> like you could always get up. up one of the most beautiful things about cycling when, when you're out running and you run out of energy or you, you know, you just, you've done six hours, you don't have any yeah. left to give, you know, you, you just stop running. You're you start done. walking. Yeah. With cycling, there's, it doesn't, you it's not, maybe you're not going fast, you know, maybe you're not making Watts, but you can just keep pedaling until you're a shell of a human. And, and that's, I don't think there's another sport where you can kind of push yourself, you know, to up up to and past that point without sort of having to stop the activity i like to ride i used to like to ride my bike more but i used to like to ride it really far more and kind of do these things um i just go as far as i possibly can to to that point of like oh when i step off the bike i can barely walk into the convenience store to get the ice cream and then try and make it home and every the stuff that happens on the way home is yeah it's a, it's memorable i guess it's a very personal <laughs> transformative journey, it's, yeah. yeah it's almost like a a vision quest you know you're you're just in this alternate universe when you get to that that point yeah. and you know i race bikes for a living and we often race six seven hours uh but actually today the the team just announced uh, publicly that we're going to do uh and by we uh, pete stetna and myself are going to race dirty kanza on saturday and I fully expect to be humbled by the experience. I, I think a lot of people look at a pro racer doing a kind of grassroots race like that and go, oh, well, they're going to ruin it. They're going to come in and smash it and use their fancy equipment. And, you know, they're. Okay. Everybody's at Kansas with fancy equipment. <laughs> well, true. But because <laughs> like, uh, you can like. As a civilian, I can buy the equivalent of a Formula One car in a bike. Yeah. If I had the money. Yeah, it's true. I don't know which yeah. one that would be. Probably the McLaren, but you know, or whatever. Yeah. But I, the, um, but I don't think it'll be like that. I think, yeah, that started out as a grassroots thing, but those races are such cool experiences that other people also want to do them, it turns right. out. And, and, and they for just the have exact different reason jobs. that we just talked about that, you know, by the end of that race, I will be transported to a, you know, a time and a place that I, I can only replicate, you know, through really long training rides. Yeah. Uh, and there's something about that, you know, that feeling when you've pushed yourself that far over that long a, a period of time, it's euphoric. Uh, it's gratifying because you have to build up to get there. Uh, but it's also humbling because you see how quickly everything can unravel. And yeah. <laughs> that's not something that changes when, you know, 
you go from a weekend warrior to a, a world tour pro it it can you know joe can attest uh, there's there's been many a ride where <laughs> i've fallen flat on my face after uh you know riding joe into the ground for four hours and then all of a sudden i'm out of food and joe's the only one left with any legs it's glorious i've actually <laughs> split second that's the cool thing about yeah. cycling though is it's all relative yeah like yeah. we're all yeah the three of us are all <laughs> at different levels of cycling capacity the people that we've talked about that are doing dirty kanza also various levels of capacity yeah, huge spectrum and but every single one of us has experienced the exact same sensation yeah. of feeling awesome and, and or feeling less terrible less you know, awesome we've all wall. been the hammer and we've all been the nail and it all feels the same way and i don't think there are many sports where it's that democratic yeah yeah well, i mean yeah. you know if you're if you're a professional swimmer and you're doing the olympic trials you know within you know a few tenths of a second of what you're going to do it, fine point yeah you know in bike racing <laughs> yeah. you can be on the podium one week and in the ditch with a broken collarbone dnf the next it just yeah it's it's there's so many variables and and you're pushing the body so hard for such a long period of time that weird weird shit happens and the, i think the cool thing about kanza too is that you know you're you're adding even more variables in a way just um due to the surface the surface and and, and the you know they've obviously put an emphasis on self-reliance yeah which you know if you go backwards in time with road racing that was one of the the big things about the sport was you know you brought your your tires with you and you changed them yourself and and you pulled over at the welders to rebend your fork if yeah, necessary yeah. or <laughs> stopped at the convenience store to get your next bottle of water so that yeah it was cool because there was sort of this frontiersman like you know orienteering piece that we don't really have in professional racing anymore you know they they have motorcycles telling us where to turn and and, and generally people follow those directions generally I, i've seen <laughs> i've seen people miss them a turn before uh including myself but the yeah i think kanza brings back some of that um that older version of of the sport that we all that sense of adventure too that we're all we're all looking for you know the there's plenty of things that i could uh sit here and diss on millennials for uh all day long <laughs> but one of the things that i applaud about the, our generation is that we've we've stopped wanting to accumulate stuff as much and we're looking more for experience so that's an interesting there's a an article about marketing and you know trying to capitalize on you know attitudes of relevance and wokeness or you know whatever um that was on medium yesterday or the day before and uh i was reading through that and that, that exact statement regarding millennials when, when they were talking about disposable income that millennials were spending it more on having experiences than on accumulating stuff which i th that had not yet occurred to me or not like i didn't see it and then 
you know, cynical me said, oh, well, they're just having experiences so that they can, you know, broadcast them on their social media and then hope to accumulate stuff out of that. Not actually, not just direct, direct buy of the thing. They're trying to have the experience, sell the experience. We're trying to show off their experience rather than just experiencing the experience. Yes. This was my cynical thing. Don't get me wrong. That was pre-coffee this morning. All day (laughs) talking about the the negatives of the... Uh, my generation. <laughs> I, I think every gen. you know, I mean, I could certainly have similar commentary about mine if I could remember back that far. Um, and now, uh, Joe, are we the same generation? We're not. Kind of. We're like a decimal point of a generation yeah. difference or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I did grow up in Seattle. So, and, you know, you as a late arrival there via California. You're one of the Californicators up there in the Northwest. Actually, yeah. your footprint's pretty small. Small, small footprint. Small footprint. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to get you going, man. You feel rather subdued today. We have, we have <laughs> on the bike arguments that m- <laughs> make it clear that Joe is not a product of the Pacific Northwest. Ex- exactly. Still, still rolling the 818 area code, which wasn't even like what is what was what would Ohio be? Would that be like a f- okay? So when you dropped that, oh, that was... No, that was pre-cell phone. Pre-cell phone, exactly. Yeah, you know, I actually just got back into the 206 area code because I didn't, I didn't have a cell phone until I left home for uh, college, the, my second year of college. I went to Colorado, and that was, I was 20, 20 I guess. That so was had, my first cell phone. So when... Um, what, what era was that at... Because at, you went to CU... Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It um, was about 1870. Okay, that's, that's where I'm at in my career. <laughs> I keep joking about that with my teammates because I've, you know, I'm now. I think I'm like the third oldest guy on the team, uh, and which it, is shocking to me because I was just telling Mark yesterday. I remember you as a junior. Yeah, like that's how long I've actually been in the Seattle area. True. Yeah. Oh, oh he, re- now he's playing. Now he's I trying remember. To play that. It, well, I it's. <laughs> I mean, I've lived there since 2003. I'm slowly I've converting him too. What's that? I'm slowly converting you. Into <laughs> you and Heidi. <laughs> <laughs> you damn island people. Is, is Heidi a, a Kitsap County? She's a product she, of the island. Yeah, she's All right. not just Kitsap County, Bainbridge Island. Yep. Specifically. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag island life. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, if we did hashtags, we're not, we're not going to go there, though. No, 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 because that's actually a pound sign. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so hashtag me too takes on a whole different meaning. <laughs> um, somebody, somebody that I follow on the social media recently posted a, a picture of like Lake Ozette. And I'm just like, oh, childhood Boy Scout flashbacks <laughs> to the peninsula and driving through forks and. Uh, like Lake Quinault Lodge and all of these yeah. things from my youth were yeah. Lake Crescent and the logging roads, you know, thereabouts. I know I'm in the room right now. Like I'm the Northwest interloper in the room right now. <laughs> but you I mean, know, no, you left a long time ago. What's sad is, you know, you talk about that stuff and, you know, to people my age or around my age and they go, oh yeah, where the vampire movie was filmed. <laughs> You know, that's, that's all it means to, wow. to my generation. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, th- there is a ubiquitous thing and that, and that, you know, the, um, 
the more modern the era, let's say, and the more media there is, the more the cultural references are related to the media than the, you know, the, the actual look. Somebody, there was, there was an ad on BBC or something, um, something like where you could go on some kind of vacation to all these real life locations where Game of Thrones was filmed. Yeah, I, like, I live in one of those locations, yeah. <laughs> Girona in Spain. And you know what happens when a, a large uh, TV show like that films there is the rental prices go up. Yes. That's what exactly. happens. <laughs> and the you know selfie stick sales and stuff like that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, it's a weird thing. I, I, you know, I, I don't. I don't know why uh, something like that has the power to sort of draw people in when all the other, you know, wonderful things about the place don't. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if Joe remembers you as a junior, then yeah. you are already racing when you went to Boulder. I, and my journey into cycling... I guess is an untypical one, but that is sort of typical for um, North Americans uh, doing this sport, you know, at the the highest level. Nobody really has the same story, so there there isn't, you know, it's not like you play college football, you get scouted, you go to the NFL, you get drafted. The, there's there's such a disconnect. It's such a Eurocentric sport that there's not a clear path for north americans or you know australians anyone outside of that sort of you know western european yeah uh area to to get into the sport so uh my story is uh i guess i was a late bloomer i uh got into it because uh, Paul down at the local bike shop uh, saw my best friend and I riding our bike to and from crew practice all the time, and I didn't get very big, so crew wasn't really an option at the Olympic level. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I really wanted to do sport at a at a high level. I don't know where that desire came from, but somewhere. And he, uh, Paul, um, who owns uh, Classic Cycle on the island? You know, asked me and uh, my buddy to come to Seattle to do the local Seward Park crit one night. So we went over there. You know, we were way over our heads. I just, you know, I had a steel bike with down tube shifters, and I, I don't. I must have had. I think I had toe clips. I don't think I had clipless pedals even. And we went over there. I made it like four laps. Threw up they were kind they would you know let guys like myself back into the race if i if you sat at the back yeah. so i you know tried again made it a couple more laps and it was uh incredibly challenging but it was you know it was an adrenaline rush it was fun it was exciting and so it went back the next week and the next week and i can't point to one moment where it it became all consuming for me but somewhere in the next couple of years, uh, it went from being something I did for fun with friends to, um, something that I, you know, I wanted to make my, uh, my career. And to do that, you had to go to Europe. Yeah. So I went to Belgium and did a bunch of kermesses and, uh, mostly got my shit kicked in. 
So yeah. just on your own, you decided to sort of go over there because that's where... Yeah, the, the national team had a program, but it was not easy to get into. They didn't have a, a way to sort of scout talent. Okay. So you had to show up to sort of the national level races and get noticed, hopefully, by someone from the national team who was there. It wasn't. It wasn't a clear process. There was no like, this is where you apply and this is how you apply. Yeah. And it was the only things that were known quantities back then were, you got to go get experience in Europe, or you're, you're never going to get picked up. Um, and you need to do well at at U23 nationals, and th- those are your two chances to to get somewhere. And uh, I wasn't phenomenal as a u23 i would say i was solidly mediocre but i was tenacious and and i was also lucky that the seattle cycling community was super tight-knit and i owe you know my career to a lot of people from the the cycling community in seattle a lot of people looked after me in ways that you know at the time i probably didn't recognize and they they opened a lot of doors for me um, the Hoggins Berman team was an amateur team out of Seattle at the time. Uh, and they brought me on board and that got me to a bunch of kind of national level races where some of the smaller domestic teams were, were racing and I could, you know, hopefully get noticed by, by one of those teams. And if you do well there, then maybe get noticed by a little bit bigger team. And it's, and then you were waste management for a little bit. Yeah. Waste, waste management. Um, with they were Barney. they were out of Arizona. Yeah, the, uh, Steve Coleman ran the team uh, with Barney King, and that was a U twenty three development team. Okay, and and actually they they had about I don't know, six or seven guys over. That's an awesome name for like a cycling program. program. <laughs> Waste management. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> especially yeah. if it's W A S T E. Yeah. Not the other. Yeah. <laughs> Which would also be amusing. <laughs> That'd be more of your kind of type two sort of yeah. <laughs> yeah. cycling club. But the, you know, the only way that Americans make it in this sport are by, you know, because of people who are, are passionate about helping develop, you know, young riders and, and get them opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like even that it, despite the, existence of the national program now it still seems to be run like the 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 success of it is based on like guys like joe guys like billy Innes, like just talking a little bit during the podcast with billy about like okay that's he's he's really into trying to form you know the yeah, next I mean, generation. Yeah, I mean, it's tough to make a living racing bikes. It's even tougher to make a living, you know, trying to help people race bikes. Make a, make a living <laughs> racing bikes. <laughs> it, yeah, you just you do. You have to be passionate about the end. Yeah. And uh, luckily for me, there, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of people who were passionate. And and you know, it's, well, I think lucky for you too that um, let's just say. Uh, well, a couple things. One, I think it's a little bit easier now. Still not easy, but easier now through the junior program that exists now than what it was when you were kind of discovering. Yeah, the certainly more cohesive pathway. now. And then there's also just your personality makeup. With I, I don't quite see it as evident now, but that chip on your shoulder. Uh, 
definitely helped you out back back in the day yeah you know we 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 talk about talent uh especially in the west as being physiological gifts but after spending you know decade in this sport uh at or near the top level i've realized that talent comes in lots of different forms you know some people talk about how oh you know i'm not that talented it's just that you know i just make sure i do my training every day and you know yeah but that is your talent you know you're actually able to go your out talent and do is your it every time you're incredibly yeah. consistent and you're self-driven and you're you know there's there's just all kinds of ways to to make it happen of course in any sport you you have to meet a threshold uh, so sure. even at the things that you're not great at you know you there's a minimum threshold that if you don't meet there's no chance and it, you know cycling is an incredibly demanding sport and if you don't meet you know some of those physiological thresholds it's yeah, just you not can't happen yeah you're it's it's um it's self-correcting in that way yeah. or it's a very it, there is a yeah selection threshold um the this idea of, uh, that that we in the west focus you know aim the word talent especially in sport too much on the physical um is that that's something absolutely wor- i mean it, it we see it in our practice or former practice for me certainly of of tr- you know training others and and you know michael um and i have you know developed a philosophy that is largely that the base of the pyramid is largely has to do with non-physical factors um that make up and or allow that physical performance and i would certainly and you see it i mean certainly in cycling often and and, you, and, and let's just i could use something timely because i i do watch the bike races and the other day um uh Zacharin had a wonderful day out on the bike and then he lost seven minutes the next day. Now, was that because he had two, was it the day before was a bit too wonderful? Or, you know, and that it was a physio, physiological problem the second day? Or was it that he had been so far mentally on the day that he won that there was just nothing left in the, you know, the, 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 the more ethereal gas tank? Yeah, or, or even just that, you know, that internal dialogue that occurs where you're telling yourself, oh, I must be tired from yesterday. And it, there's so many times as an athlete where I, I don't know the answer. I don't know if I ran out of gas because I wasn't... Or which tank ran dry. Yeah, or which tank ran dry. <laughs> yeah, 100%. It's, it's, it's actually infuriating sometimes because, you know, you want to know, you want to train your, your weaknesses. And, you know, if your weakness is that you're not allowing yourself the performances that you're capable of, well, it's, it is trainable, but it, it's hard to know when that's holding you back versus just the physiological. But it has to be identifiable before it's trainable. And if you don't sure. know why you're sort of, you know, coming to the end of the rope, <laughs> um, then, then what do you do? I mean, except for more of the same. And, and I think that's, you know, especially on that, um, that the, the, the talent question or, the, the, or what we were headed towards with the talent question of like, oh, these different, you know, different types of talent exist to make up the whole. And like you just the consistent training or the self-motivated thing as, as, as a, a, one of the useful talents. Um, but I think the, the self-awareness and self-knowledge to, 
be able to identify what went wrong the day that you did come up mm -hmm. against it mm -hmm. is probably also a, a pretty useful talent. Yeah, there's a that, lot of... Uh, to, to, so that you can have some athletic longevity. Analytical-minded people in this sport, certainly. Oh, and yeah, it's yeah. Okay, I, that, that wasn't like a, a revelation. I realized. I was just gonna. Aren't we sitting next to Mr. Millimeter right here? Yeah. Uh, you know, I I actually find it incredibly refreshing when I meet people who aren't. And I uh, going back a little bit to what you were, were speaking about the you know. Um, performance of, of Zacharin the other day you know my favorite performances on the bike are from people who are either punching above their their weight class you know they're they're riding to a level that they're not really supposed to be capable yeah. of whatever the reason you know maybe they were mentally strong that day or they just everything else aligned and they had that you know perfect uh course and perfect race scenario yeah and then the second type of performance I love to watch are people who are not constrained by the analytics, you know, where they, they look at it, you know, everyone else is looking at it and going, okay, this is, this is the type of rider it suits. This is the type of tactics that are going to be raced. And this is, you know, and they, they constrict what can be done on that particular day for, yes. for themselves and for their, their teammates. And, when you every once in a while when you get sort of a non-analytical um person in the sport you you get these wonderful displays of of performance that are just they're unhindered by the idea that it might not work yeah uh, that's those are those are the really fun races to watch and i you know i i've had a few of those days in my career and if if that's all i get you know, when this is said and done as a few, it was it was well worth it. Those are the really wonderful days. That, for me, I mean, when I started watching bike racing, well, when I first started, I had no idea what I was looking at, so it took some years to sort of understand. But then the, 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 the races that I enjoyed or the stages of races that I enjoyed were always the ones where there was some mercurial performance that happened on one particular day, and then that... and it just happened to be the day it's you know Viranc doing some crazy suicide breakaway on bastille day or something and yeah I can't because remember what you know you was. also want like, the these people performing superhuman feats to be human yeah and when when they can you know fly so high one day and then fall from grace the next we can identify with that and i i like seeing bike racing like that you and, know. and to know that 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 actually costs something to yes. fly that close yeah. to the sun let's say yeah. that like there's okay there's a there's there is a you know everything costs something and everyone pays and, and, and it helps and, boost my morale too because if it's not costing these guys to do these superhuman performances and walk away from me then then I'd just too defeated to get up the next day and <laughs> start again yeah I, but I imagine that the it's it's the same with mountain climbing that that some of the best most amazing wonderful sort of performances for lack of a better word are when uh individuals can sort of let go of their constraints let go of uh what is and isn't 
possible on that particular day with their particular skill set. It, it can also, you know, put people in dangerous situations. But I'm thinking of, in particular, I just recently watched um, the documentary about the uh, the two guys, you have to remind me of their names, that um, uh, climbed uh, El Capitan uh, all the way to the top in one run. And there was a, a particular section, I want to say in about the middle, that was, it wasn't a vertical section, it was a traverse. Yeah. And the, you know, one of the guys was a very experienced big mountain climber uh, who, you know, cut his teeth on faces like that. Mm-hmm. And and the other was, um, came from the bouldering world. Yeah. And he had... So the Don Wall film is... Yeah, Don with, Wall. With Tommy yeah. and... Yeah. So the... Um, the fellow who was, you know, world-class bouldering um, expert had nothing on his resume that would indicate he was capable of that traverse. And he, he did it and failed and did it again and failed and did it. And they, they hadn't actually completed that leg at any point in time before they started their final ascent of the whole uh, wall. And, you know, each time he's doing it, he's getting more tired. And so everything says it's less likely that he'll complete that, that segment. And, and then against all odds, he, he did it. And, uh, that was, you know, for me, the coolest moment of that, uh, film, you know, even if at that point they hadn't made it to the top, that, that one moment really encapsulated, I think what was, or what is beautiful about, mountain climbing and, and performance in general. I think what is beautiful about sport, you know, top level performance, regardless of the, the situation, the, you know, the, the, the sport itself or the situation, um, when, like you said, it's a bit, you know, against all odds. Um, and you know, one could, the, the analyzers could, you know, figure out that like, Oh yeah, he was X percent more efficient on the opening moves of this. So he actually had the energy left to do the thing, even though sure. the tank tank was only 80% instead of a hundred percent, you know, all of those things. Um, and, and, and I, it, it, all of the, like, I think what we're sort of talking about there is that, that all of the, the, the sport performances that we admire are things which are driven largely from this, you know, from the inside versus, you know, a, a, a technical skill oriented expression of the, yeah, they're, perf- they're performances from heart rather than yeah. science or, or, or yeah. calculation. Or things that could be measured, I yeah. guess. Yeah, versus, calculation. Um, which is, t- to me, an inter- in- interesting so- sort of thing now in sport. Obviously, I mean, it's, and if we go to road cycling, it's, it's one of the, the things where you can actually capture and utilize the greatest amount of data. Um, and And so, therefore, there's you know, yes, performances has been improved, but I feel like sometimes the, the availability of that data and the reliance on it, um, cuts into stamps out the the heart in a sense. Um, yeah, this is the sky phenomenon and could uh, be, I suppose, (laughs) and, uh, you certainly can't blame them what they're doing is working yeah so we we as an audience so i'm I'm stepping outside my role as a you know 
performer for for a minute and uh including myself in the audience we as a as an audience have to decide what is it we want to see in in sport what is it that we want to idolize you know this is a question i've asked myself a lot because cycling is not particularly popular in the u.s uh so i look at the sports that are and i i ask myself what you know what is it about these sports that uh everyone in america seems to you know be attracted to that that you know we're missing and it's a complicated answer but one of the the things that i'm i'm sure is true is they they want all of the data in front of them you know they want to know how many uh free throws were missed and how many three-pointers were made and you know have the list of data but they want the performance to not be determined by any of that that data those two things need to be separate and and it, especially in america there is this urge or desire to root for the underdog and one of the things that's hard in cycling is yeah yes there are underdogs but there's 170 people in the bike race yeah and all these other sports are you know one team versus the other or one individual versus the other so it's really easy to know that guy's the underdog and that guy's not and in cycling, that's a it's a difficult question to answer. So I think that's one of the things. But it's also in almost all of the sport. Let's just say the ball sports. You can see all the players at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that NFL game, all twenty two dudes are on the field. Basketball, there's the ten guys. Soccer, it's another twenty two guys. Hockey, what is that? Ten. My Canadian friends will, you know, mock <laughs> me for not you. knowing. <laughs> um, it's dead. Uh, okay, <laughs> thanks, Joe. Uh, and I think in a bike race, it's it's also difficult to understand. Like, what the fuck is going? You know, why yeah, isn't the guy who's in yeah, front like in I said, front? Like, I mean, he's, I they say he's the, the leader, and thinking he's about it, like twenty five guys back. How can he be the leader? And yeah, you know, like it's this, a complicated it's, answer. It, it. I don't think it's so far. Like, so I put on a bike race. Right, and every J- year, just so we're clear, uh, we don't recommend doing that to any, <laughs> any of the, <laughs> yeah, the no, listeners also, out there. Don't race. Don't become a race promoter. <laughs> yeah. It's not a lucrative. Don't uh, be a coach. Don't. Yeah. yeah. Don't do anything that I do. You can be a racer, <laughs> but only if you're really good. <laughs> but it's you know, and and I get a new person at the city where I put the bike race on every other year or so, and I have to explain to them every single time. Yeah that well now we have to do things a certain way because this is bike racing it's not fill in the blank here it's not a 5k it's not a 10k it's not yeah. the softball game it's not but but that's just it, it, it and that goes back to sort of what keel you recognize is that you know bike racing is not very popular in the united states of um and and so yeah it's a it's a tough thing to explain you know, to explain to people. And it is useful sometimes. Like yesterday when they were descending off the last climb, um, I was like, I want to see, there's a piece of data that I want to see on the screen. And that is how fucking fast they're going right now. Like, I don't need to know anything else. Um, It's just that, okay, these roads are super narrow. I mean, I have a pretty good idea because I've ridden in Europe a fair amount. But still, it's just like to, 
you know, with when yeah, Selena the, watches the with roads me yesterday are something special too. Oh I mean, my Lombardia is definitely one of the most technically demanding courses we do. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, that's those light bulb shaped hairpin yeah. turns that, yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, um, but let's say to go, um, to illustrate, and, and I wrote something about this that I'll have to try and dig up. Uh, Joe will probably remember, but so which was it Florence, the world championships where it was rained mm-hmm. really, really bad. And, yeah. and, and even though Nibali didn't win, he kept getting up off the pavement after he crashed and kept fighting back on. And I just mm-hmm. thought, now that is serious heart right there. Like, you know, it's in boxing. They would have told him, stay down, man, just stay down. You're getting, yeah. You know, and, or you know this like, is one of the, the cool things about cycling. We were talking about how, you know, with basketball, football, hockey, you can see all the players on the field Yeah, and there's only one narrative because it's sure team a versus team B yeah in cycling there are all these different narratives all these different stories taking place within the bike race so you know on a typical day of the Giro you'll have a big breakaway of 20 riders that gets away so then there's the fight for the the stage honors and maybe one guy in there is a GC guy who lost time and he's trying to make it up he's far enough down that the GC teams aren't gonna you know fight that battle that day and uh, then, you know, in that group, there's going to be the guy who goes, I can't win the sprint. So he's going to attack early. There's the guy waiting for the sprint. So that it's, it's hugely dynamic. And then you have an entire separate bike race happening behind for the GC battle. And, uh, you know, on any given day, there could be a, a dozen or more, you know, no, not just noteworthy, you know, press worthy stories that happen within the race. And uh, Roubaix is a perfect example of a race yeah. like that. You know, no rider finishes Roubaix without a story. You know, oh, I had a bike change here and a flat there and I crashed twice. And, Just ask you know, Seth I chased on the, the car, you know, and it's so hard to capture that on TV. Yeah. You know, the announcers don't even know what's going on half the time. And there's so many riders to track. So that that is difficult, you know, as a viewer to to understand what's going on and then not be able to recognize sometimes people when they're in the group. Like I'm always, this Mm -hmm. is the first year where I can, I've been able to identify, and I've been watching bike racing for a long time now, but this is the first year where I've been able to identify people and what they're doing and sometimes why before the announcer says it. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's why I got long hair, man. (laughs) Oh yeah, there he is. (laughs) But it's been, it's it. So it takes that, much of an investment to sort of watch and pay attention and, and try. And, and, and that's, so it would be another reason potentially not just the lack of coverage or, or the sort of bad coverage that I would say apart from the tour, maybe, um, here in the States that, you know, like I have to, I have to cheat. I have to, you know, get a VPN and spoof my presence. All right. It's, this is going to sound like a, a, sponsor shout out okay uh, but i'm these guys do an amazing job flowbikes.com yeah okay yeah it's not free uh i'm totally willing to pay for your it is not you don't need a vpn it is for us viewers okay and they've got a double the amount of races they had last year so they don't have the tour and they don't have um i think 
maybe Perry Roubaix or something like. There's okay. a couple races they're missing. A couple ASL right ones that are too. They yeah. have almost everything else on the World Tour calendar. Yeah, really? so, I, I pulled the trigger on that. Yeah, I have my all my extended families on it. Okay. Uh, because yeah, you don't you don't have to have a VPN and the whole. It is a place where you can go and watch all of the bike races, and you're not signing up for. TV package that's 700 channels that you'll never. Yeah, look I mean, at. at least NBC allows you to just get cycling now, but it's just you just get the cycling that they get or they're willing to. Yeah. So it it is it it's not quite worth it. And in in I gotta say, you know, Sean Kelly is an amazing commentator. When when you, you don't understand him, you don't get the irony there. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, uh, two three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, um. So flow bikes. F L O bikes.com. Dot com. Yeah. I will make a purchase today because, because yeah. it's, it's, it has been one of the sort of more frustrating things and, you know, it takes, and I don't, and I, I'm happy to pay, but in any case, yeah. um, but the, but the, but, but the sort of the lack of general coverage of, of the sport and then a good sort of educational analysis, like, like even I, it, it, it's, it's something, you know, it, it's one of the contributing factors plus, you know, the, you know, <laughs> I, I saw we were talking about, you know, all the different stories that go into a bike race. And I read something yesterday. Uh, it was uh, Roglic. Is that how you say his name? Roglic. Roglic. Yeah. I think I, <laughs> I'm probably getting corrected on that. Too. And he, <laughs> I, he finished the stage on a teammate's bike. Yeah. Right. And crashed. Yeah. Antoine Tolk gave him his bike. And, and, and whether or not this is true, but. I saw, you know, digging around some feed that I was looking at that, okay, well, the reason that that happened was that earlier in the stage, he had gone back to the team car to, you know, get some bottles for the last 20K. And then the director decided, and they would have been, I don't know, what position was he on GC at that second? Point? Second. So they're car two in the caravan, right? Yep. But the director decided at that point okay he got his what he needed and i'm gonna stop and take a piss and then the shit happened and then yeah. the car wasn't there and and like as and being a director where i've been on the side of the road yeah. like hey man we're gonna take a piss and the mechanic and you get out and you're still listening to the radio like i can only imagine yeah. Hashtag the wide mouth attack. Gatorade bottle. Hashtag <laughs> probably some spray going in some places that the, the, you don't want it to and yeah. hurrying to get back in the car, but you yeah. can't get back up there. But so th this brings up an interesting point and, and yet another uh, sort of reason why I think cycling uh, is failing to capture a larger audience in the U S is, is the storyline. And that that's a great story you know like at the end of the day you could yeah. say oh the director screwed up or you could say well you know why did why was roger going back to the car why wasn't one of his you know like you could blame it on whoever it doesn't matter it, it makes for controversy and controversy is a good thing in sports oh and yeah we as a sport don't do a good enough job at sort of uh publicizing the battles that are happening in inside the sport and the fact that as a team director on a six-hour stage you might need to stop and take a piss right like that that's just a reality you know and like sometimes it happens in in the wrong moment and you know i i was watching uh you know i have a daughter so i don't really ever watch 
TV. But at the last bike race I was at, I had a little bit of downtime. And uh, I watched the, there was a Netflix series of, about Formula One racing. I've already forgotten the, the name. But everybody in cycling needs to watch that and take a cue from it. Yep. Because the it set up a, a narrative, you know, it was each episode was a chunk of the season. So by the end of the, the episodes, you've gone through an entire Formula One season. Okay. And I want to watch Formula One now. I didn't follow it before, but Look now there's you an, turn it into a real Euro. Yeah, bike race. You're I, gonna I spent start too much time in Formula One. <laughs> yeah, it just it, when and you, we when brought you it back full circle. A narrative, <laughs> you you become inter- intrigued interested yeah. excited about it you you have some skin in the game that's a really well done really well done too. and cycling desperately needs something and like the thing that. too about formula one like we're talking about cycling being so data-driven yeah yeah talk about data one is data-driven but they they made you know in that series they weren't talking about the data they right. were they were talking about the story yeah. And the story was this guy hates that guy or, you know, this team has a feud with that team. And I can tell you, for one, in cycling, that kind of stuff does happen. Oh, yeah. It's just everyone's Not too worried about, about sponsors to, to be anything but PC. And two, even if it doesn't, make it up. You know, like people watch wrestling on TV. Everybody knows it's for, fake. For and the stories. Yeah. You know. Uh, Good point. So, like, well, come on. <laughs> like, even if it's not true, you know, we need to, we we need start, to start a rumor making right now? stuff up. Who do you up. hate? Yeah, you, you know, <laughs> Alex Howes, man. I'm coming for him. <laughs> but, but if there's... He and I are going to have a punch-up at Dirty Kansas. <laughs> there we go. Mile marker 132. <laughs> Be there. <laughs> Sunday, 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 Sunday. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> Dirt They're going to turn the entire state of Kansas into a giant mud pit. But, but so there was, um, what was the, uh, there was a sort of pro tour documentary and it was about, and was it about the CSC team? Oh, the, the or, high road. The, um, uh, yeah. Wasn't I, it called high road? The it, high road? It might've been. I, I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't remember. I it was the high but, road. It, but it, that had, there was more story than race in a sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. to it and, and but but I also think there's part of the the like when you you know okay what are the first things that come into my mind when someone says okay I'm sitting here with a Steelers fan so I can't go too far here somebody says you know NFL I think oh domestic violence <laughs> 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 oh wait sorry that dude. I, the first thing that goes into my head as an athlete is concussion protocol. So there's, but there's, what's the immediate thing? And unfortunately, the legacy of cycling is you say you say bike racing. The immediate legacy is something else, and and I think it will be years for people to get around that, if ever. Even, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and 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 let's not talk about that. But it, we just have to acknowledge the existence that, like, well, I want I want to say one thing, which is regardless of what people's opinions are. I I like telling people that I'm grateful that I came through in a generation where uh, I didn't have to make tough choices. So I'm not saying that nobody did make tough choices. I'm not saying yeah. I came through in a generation where you didn't have to make tough choices. And that's really cool. That's pretty 
That's awesome. So, like, I don't, I'm not going to give you my opinion on this guy or that guy. Yeah. I'm just saying I, I'm grateful that I had that opportunity. And, and I think that that's not true in a lot of sports. That's pretty astounding development, actually, it, 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 in a way that, like, okay, the, that it, you know, I'll just say it out loud, doping, you know, the, the presence of it got exposed and eventually there was enough sort of negative publicity around the sport that the, the organizing bodies decided, okay, well, we need to maybe not look like look, look so it. hard the other yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what's, and, what, and then, and, and then to make it, make it possible for young writers to, you know, come aboard and not have to make it. Right. I mean, I think what's like most you, astounding about the story is that the, uh, the attitudes around it inside the Peloton is what shifted. Is what changed. Yeah, and that and that had the, that has more impact than anything else. So driven uh, essentially from the from athletes the outward, out, from yeah. the inside out. Yeah. Okay, I, I mean yeah. that. I mean that's that's how I view it. You know, I like I said, I was lucky enough to come on into the sport. You know, through a period where. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of experience to, you know, draw from, but it's, there is, uh, an ethos within the Peloton, um, that I think is stronger than anything that the governing body, governing bodies or organizer can yeah. control. That's, yeah, that's actually really refreshing. And I, I would to- be very surprised if that feeling exists in many other sports sure <laughs> i mean i i don't think there's a um there there will be a you know one of the things you know that i that i, I think the differentiations and correct me if i'm wrong here between you know cycling in europe and cycling in the states is sort of the the, the class differences of people who get into yeah, it definitely um definitely and it really it makes for some very interesting dynamics i i, I mean it just seems um in a way that if that it that it had start i mean essentially it had started as a very sort of blue collar or proletariat sport in Europe and then has developed. And now you have, I think both ends of the spectrum, um, in a, in a sense present. Um, but in the, in the U S it's, it does seem to be middle-class and above are the only people who, 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 who could discover it as a, as a sport, um, in a sense. And obviously there's some stories that are, um, that are outside of that sort of normal curve, but um, it's it, that has always been a fascinating part of it to me. That you know, guys will come, you know, realize like, wow, it's a way out of the mine. It's a way out of the you know the modern mine of a factory or the yeah. you know the office kind of cubicle. That if I can be good at this one particular sport, and the fact that so many people ride bikes, you know, in Europe, everywhere you drive, you see people on bikes. And yeah, uh, that that it, that it is something that's a bit more present in the collective consciousness. Which I mean, I ended up in Europe um, for to you know when I decided to you know turn pro because all the best guys in the world were there, and because all of the sponsors that I had at the time were European, and so it made sense to go there. And everywhere you go in Europe, there are mountains. So when you start talking about climbing to people, they get it because they they drive you know especially if they're you know anywhere in the Western or Eastern you know Alps close to it. 
um, and, and some other stuff, they, they recognize that, yeah, people, you know, have lived in the mountains since Europe was a thing. Um, and people go climbing there and they, everybody knows someone who's a climber or a skier or someone who does something in those. And so it was just less justification of a chosen lifestyle necessary when I was there. And I would think that in some ways that might be a refreshing part of Yeah. I mean, it, it was definitely racer. one of the things I loved about Europe in the beginning was, was I felt, I felt that, um, that it, I, there was more acceptance. You know, I wasn't having to explain to people, hey, yes, you can ride a bicycle for a living and no going to the tour de France isn't about making a, you know, college application and <laughs> sending it in and, you know, asking if they'll give you a, a ticket. The, the disappointing thing is that, uh, that's disappearing even in Europe. Okay. Uh, I have as many bad experiences with cars there as I do here now. And there, there is more of a disconnect uh, between riding, riding bikes as a, as a lifestyle and, and bike racing. There's certainly more people who are passionate about the sport in Europe. It's still one of the biggest sports in the world because of its popularity in Europe. But the, even the smaller, like even the kermesses are starting to go away because the cafes that were traditionally the ones that would put on the kermesses, like they're starting to go away because people aren't going to the cafe to watch the bike race. Yeah. They're staying at home. Uh, so the cafes are shutting down. The kermesses are going away. Um, and, um, yeah, there is there is a little bit of a shift. For Sh sure. Yeah, shift in men mentality. And going back to what you were saying about the the blue collar versus white collar thing, is that is very much still relevant uh, in in my experience anyway. And what I find most interesting about it is the types of personalities that then are attracted to the sport. So, for example, in you know in Belgium specifically, cycling is wild wildly popular and uh, everyone knows you know, about the races and who the racers are and they're very intimate with the with the sport and so my teammates from belgium they're nfl stars they're nba yeah. stars you know they're they're a big deal and it attracts you know a different type of personality than say an american who you know like myself solidly middle class growing up i had lots of opportunities to do other things besides bike racing. I, I had opportunities to have a uh, much less volatile career, a much more <laughs> stable income, uh, and I chose not to take them to do this. And so that says a lot about my personality. And I think, you know, in general, what we see are people from the US, Australia, UK, you know, non-cycling countries, they're um, they're often a little bit more introverted. They're very self-driven. They're very self-sufficient. You know, nobody was telling us to go out and train. In fact, most people were telling us, you're an idiot. Stop doing <laughs> yeah. that. So, you know, you're there. So unless you're defiant, yeah. you're, yeah. you're, you're going like, to pick up a ball sport you, or something. <laughs> you're only there because you're fully committed and want to be there. You didn't end yeah. up there by accident if you're from those countries, whereas, uh, people from cycling centric countries like Italy or, or Belgium, 
from a young age, they may be, you know, more pressured into it or feel that it's uh, a more appropriate choice of a, of a career or better choice of a career than whatever else they might be able to pursue. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, yet a, a different type of, of personality and, I, and none of it's good or bad. It's just very interesting to see. But it makes the Peloton a really yeah. cool organism. Yeah. I think it's interesting place. too, like when we talk about the development pathway and, 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 you know, you talk about the, you, the Australians or the Kiwis or the American riders and then you talk about um, the development pathway and, and as they continue on the development pathway and then trying to get on a team and then the attitudes, uh, the stereotypical attitudes of some of the team, like the European Eurocentric team directors. And it's like, ah, I don't want to deal with the Americans because of X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, you know, the Americans, like think about what they had to go through to get to the level that they're at where you're even considering them that they had to travel a great distance. They're in a culture that they're not used to in an environment they're not used to. Like maybe they are the ones that uh, they've got a little bit like they had to overcome more more barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Then your typical, like you go to a Kermes and okay. Yeah. Like everybody knows about cycling and it's part of their culture and it's the great thing about it. But at the same time, especially at the junior kermesses that I go to, you know, the new Lingen and the juniors. And you see like, it's like you see a 15 and 16 year old show up at a kermesse and like the, the mom is pumping up the tires and the dad is putting on the, the, the leg cream and the kid is sitting there and in, in the lawn chair. And, and then after the race and the grandparents are there and they've got the bowl with the, with the soap and they're all just like fawning after this kid. And then you've got us with the USA cycling van and the kids are like packing the van and they're like, you know, they're doing all the stuff themselves. So like, and their parents are disappointed. They're not you know doing the ACT prep course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So like, or participating in a sport that is actually going to help allow them to yeah. retire. <laughs> so for all you yeah. European directors out there listening to this podcast, yeah, uh, <laughs> hire American. Yeah. Exactly. Cause, <laughs> cause our racers are tremendous. <laughs> you know, it, or, it's certainly true that we have, uh, you know, in the U S we have, we have a large enough population to have a huge talent pool. Oh yeah. But we don't have the development, uh, programs to, to help, you know, discover discover that talent yeah that talent and so you can make an argument that those coming through the ranks you know in america are maybe not as talented uh, as those making it through the ranks in in belgium or italy but i've certainly found in in my career that i have a, a consistency and a resilience level that a lot of my teammates don't have you know their performances are often um uh you know, otherworldly compared to what I'm capable of, but they also struggle a lot more with injuries and sickness and things like that. So I, you know, every culture, uh, every cycling culture has something yeah, like that, positives and negatives that um, are, when you amass all of that into the, the Peloton, it, like you said, it's a really unique, interesting organism that's full of different, versions yeah you know and it, and that's one of the cool things about cycling too is uh, i guess to make an analogy 
you can be six foot three and and still make it across the finish line in the same race that a guy who's five foot four and half your weight yeah you know and and maybe the next day you're winning and he's losing and vice versa so there's you know there's a bunch of different ways to to uh slice the the cake so at Kanza, that's not a saying. Slice the cake. Did I just make that up? I think, yeah. But I think you might have made that up. But <laughs> there is a saying like that, though, right? <laughs> to cut the, cut the cheese. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's totally yeah, that's to, that's to, to make yeah. to, to bake the bread. But to, that's not really <laughs> yeah. baking bread's science. You're not, trying to really you know art. skin the cat. Skin the cat. That's, that's <laughs> the one. But that's you know. Now that's just not PC. I'm I'm coining you know, it. Yeah, yeah, we don't okay. we don't want to piss off uh, Peta. Exactly. We're go, so we're going to be slicing cake, slicing cake <laughs> instead of skinning cats. Um, you know those sayings come from somewhere. So there were some deviant motherfuckers out there with some cats <laughs> at some point, and probably I, I don't know. I don't really. Um, the best, the best actually came up with skin the cat. Yeah, exactly. The best is explaining this stuff to kids, though, because you know yeah. for a kid everything's literal. One of my teammates the other day, you know, in, in German, when the ketchup bottle or whatever's getting low, uh, you know, and you, you put it upside down yeah, so that it's easier for the next person to use it. Well, they, they have a saying, they, they say, uh, put it on the head. That, you know, that's what it translates to. Okay. So he told his son that, who's around four, he said, put it on the head. His kid looked at the ketchup bottle, looked at his dad, and then he put the ketchup bottle on his head. It makes perfect sense. Absolutely. But, you know, how do you... How do you explain these some of these colloquialisms that you know just don't make any sense? Yeah, I was trying at some point, you know, when I was learning living in France and learning French and and trying to help my friend, you know, because they'd helped me and they were very altruistic. They taught me, you know, the proper way to say things. They never taught me words that were inappropriate and. I'm sorry, which... did you say French? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so I would try and teach them, you know, and, and it occurred to me at some point that, you know, look, English is the only language in which you can cut a tree down and then cut it up immediately. And and that is something that I could I could never adequately explain to yeah. my my fellow speakers. <laughs> like, and uh, That's another funny it, thing that happens to us. Uh Americans, I'll say, uh, in the, you know, when you spend a bunch of time with the team, especially my team is highly international. I think we have something like 13 different nationalities on the team. Whoa. And that's spread across like 20 plus 25? 27 riders. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's a a huge yeah and it isn't an american team technically uh trek uh is a you know an american company with with a distinctly american ethos and so that comes across in in the team and uh so we do you know english is the main language but i i end up speaking this weird butchered you know (laughs) europe accent English by the time I've you know finished a grand tour I sound like I'm from like Belgium Madonna. speaking English yeah it's really <laughs> bad affecting another accent yeah but you find like if, if we just spoke like we would if we weren't recording this we would probably be a lot sloppier in our language and and use more gestures or you know or whatever but and, and talk at a speed that you know a European for whom English was not their first language 
wouldn't be able to keep up. And so you, it, so it's a, it's a nice gesture to slow down. It's a nice gesture to find a simpler way to say something rather than the more sort of complicated roundabout way. Uh, I mean, at least I yeah, that was, it, that was but, a flattering way to put it for, <laughs> you know, when I get sideways looks at the coffee shop for ordering a, a flat white and in a Belgian accent. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that, um, yeah, that might raise an eyebrow or two. I, I, uh, it, it's so. There's another aspect of the sport that is actually pretty fascinating, because, you know, if we talk about American football, well, it's a distinctly American sport, and everybody's speaking. You know, you're not bringing, and even in the NBA, there, you know, there's one or two Europeans or Asians that are. Uh, that are playing, but it's, but in cycling, it is like 13 different nationalities spread across 27 people. That yeah. is shockingly diverse. Yeah. In, in yeah. national sense. It's, uh, what's even more interesting perhaps is that regardless of the nationalities of the teams competing races in different I'll say continents. Okay. Take on distinctly different tactical sort of, they, they have very different flows. Okay. So if you're racing in China, even if it's against European teams, yeah. the, the feel of the race, the, the moment to attack, the uh, time to take a, a pee break, the, you know, the moment to uh what else do you do in a bike race besides attack and take a pee break switch on switch off <laughs> yeah the, the moment to to start riding the front is completely different than when you're racing in america even against you know european teams so like tour of california it's just the race is distinctly american even though that was almost entirely made up of European, you know, non-domestic teams. teams. Yeah. Than it is when I race against those exact same teams on European roads. I was trying to, you know, bring out a little detail because peeing is one of the things. So yesterday in the Giro, I, I they might, might've been going through Bustar CTO or one of the, you know, some small town and it was time for the nature break, but they were in town, but it's cool in Europe to pull off to the side of the road. I mean, especially in a race here, you'd be DQ'd or find i'm guessing yeah. like two or i got a two and a half year old i don't understand why you can't pretty much just pee anywhere i'm it, it, it's <laughs> funny because having you know lived there full time and then you know for five years and then been there for the better part of a decade it was just totally natural to me you know yeah i'll turn away i'm not going to wave it at you but um but it never you know to come back to the states there were certain things i i habits i needed to 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 correct and Actually, Joe, you were asking Damn me, those Puritans. Well, they, yeah, you know, that's what happens. You spend too long on a boat coming across the yeah. ocean, I guess. But, uh, or maybe you're a religious fanatic that got kicked out. I can't remember exactly why they maybe a little fled both. to the West. But <laughs> um, that, Joe, you were asking me about Elkhorn, the, um, the stage race in Eastern Oregon. Oh, yes. yeah, I've done Elkhorn. Um, and uh, so the, the year that, the one year that I did it, I was second, I mean, in my master's category. Um, going into the last stage and then the dude that was in first got DQ'd for public urination. And so before, you know, the, like, and I was just like, 
motherfuckers. So they go, all right. And they call my name and I'm like, what have I done? Oh, fuck. And then they go and they say, okay, you're the race leader. Here's the jersey. Um, <laughs> by the way, don't pee anywhere. Yeah, by the way, don't pee on someone's, you know, or lawn or bush or yeah. something. That was, it's like, well, I, I guess, I mean, you know the rules, so... You know, but but it, yesterday on television, you know, guys are just pulling off the side of the road, and and I was trying to explain to Selena what would happen in Tour of California or someplace here if you did that. Um, there's probably some place here in Utah you could do it because you're out, as you noted, in some yeah, somewhat well, desolate places. Uh, but the Middle East is far stricter than America. Even. Oh my! And it's you keep that inside. Yeah, I mean, cycling culture. Uh, has not infiltrated uh, plenty of places in in the world, and so you know there are there's all these. The sport is becoming so much more globalized than it was even five years ago, uh, or definitely ten. And yeah. so we're racing in places like the Middle East and, and China in Africa. and Africa, and so those are merging. You know. Uh, cycling hubs I guess you know we now we start the season in Australia we end it in China we spend late spring in the Middle East or I guess early spring and there's uh, races sort of uh, mid-season end of season in Africa so there's um, there's gonna be there's a couple a of races of in Quebec reckoning. too right yeah yeah Quebec Montreal which is <laughs> France, but in North America, it's very confusing. It's slightly confusing. <laughs> uh, actually, to be fair, those are the, probably two of the best organized races on the calendar. And they, yeah. Incredibly I, well put on. Uh, amazing circuits. Just the organization there is, is top notch. I was really impressed with those races. The feel is like the world championships. Yeah. I, I just, those are two that when I do have coverage, I love watching because yeah. they're always sort of like kick someone's teeth in, kind mm-hmm. of. Well, even the, even uh, the stage that's courses. in Old Town, Quebec is Bose. Yeah. Like, that's an amazing stage. Yeah. Yeah, you know, always it's the, the courses where it can go either way. You know, where a, a break could win it, a, a puncher could make a last-minute attack, yeah. a sprinter could sneak in there, a climber could do something bold. You know, those are the really <laughs> exciting stages. Where it's not, it almost seems, you know, that, that like, I, I probably would say that I like watching, the, you know, the classics more, and, and the jeer, let's see, I'd, I feel like the tour is almost too scripted now. Yeah, in, I, in a in, in in a strange way, and the, the Giro less so, the Vuelta less so, the in in the one day classics, always just like okay, roll of the dice, kind of beautiful. Yeah, I do this for a living, and the only bike races I really uh, make a point of watching are the classics, and I can't even do that anymore because I'm in them. Because so, you're in, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I do you ever watch to find out later what happened? Only if what? there's a only if there's a really good story, like a okay. teammate says, "Oh man, you wouldn't believe, you know, twenty k to go, you know, this yeah. guy slammed into this guy and caused a, a yeah. yeah, an international yeah. incident, yeah, <laughs> or something." I, uh, the classics are definitely the heart of cycling. Yeah, I think that's that's 
I mean, who'd have, who'd have thought Philippe Gilbert would? Uh, I mean, Belgium be is back. one of <laughs> the worst places in the world to ride a bike. Cobblestone streets are not, they're not a comfortable thing to <laughs> do on a bike. The weather is terrible, yeah. especially in the spring. Uh, I've heard that, that uh, there's, it can be a little windy sometimes there. Yeah. Yeah. Like Gent Wevelgun. <laughs> And the, you know, the backdrop's not particularly scenic, but despite all of that, it is the heart of cycling. I mean, it's, it's where I get most excited about. Well, I'm getting back racing. to what we were talking about earlier about how um, your Belgian teammates are the are rock stars yeah. in Belgium. And for some reason, it, it uh, switched on a memory I had of, it was my first time going over and it was when Logan was still a junior and uh, we went over for the Cookside World Cup mm-hmm. and we just did a ride uh, out to Udenard. As you do. As you do, you know, and it's where Flanders goes through, goes through, has finished there, I believe, or started. It changes a little bit. Yeah, it starts in Antwerp. Now, it used to start in uh, Bruges. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe it finished at one point. But anyway, anyway, we were there. We stopped at the cafe next to the museum, right? In Udenard, as you do. As you do. And uh, I just went outside to, I don't know, move the bikes or, or something. And Logan was wearing the US, his USA stuff. And these two like random old Belgian guys. Oh, is that the American Logan Owen? Where the yeah. fuck does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> I was I was like Yeah. Well, well yeah, yes it is. <laughs> it's you know, but it's one he of the good like things about being an American is you you stay humble and it, it is important I think as an athlete to be reminded that at the end of the day that's that's all you're doing is a you know a sport and yeah like we talked about earlier it matters in its own way but uh it's so easy to get sucked into the vortex of you know believing that this is all important and when you go from an environment like belgium you know back to home in america it, it's a stark reminder back of to bremerton washington how not famous and <laughs> amazing you are and that is a really healthy thing for sure i i can see how that would help keep you grounded for yeah sure. i mean so something i think that um i mean that came up a little bit in the um also in in the the track video that um I'll just say it again, dropped today, um, was the fact that, you know, talking about the, you know, the life of a pro tour rider is sort of a bubble of, you know, it's, it's the race and that's the team bus and then it's the transfer and then it's the massage and then it's, you know, the, and, and all within this, some, you know, this infrastructure that does keep you somewhat insulated from the, you know, outside world, real world or whatever it is. Um, and so your attitude about like I'm just a bunch of other dudes are going to Kansas this year, right? Yeah, like because the last yeah. couple of years, um, it's been won by retired 
Ted King retired, right? Uh, from bike racing? Yeah, sort of. In Europe. Like, in Europe, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's gaining popularity, but it just seems like, okay, and, and I've read a little bit about what, you know, say Lachlan Morton does in the off season, yeah. like some adventure type yeah, stuff cool that he's too cool shit. Yeah. And so totally when, when Joe said, oh yeah, that guy's going to be there. And I said, oh, that makes, that makes sense. Being able to open up your eyes to like, okay, go outside the bubble and explore this other stuff. I think that's, well, it's, it's something there'll be more of, you know, it, no matter how people mock, you know, the whole gravel riding thing, sometimes, you know, it's because it is like, oh, we've got a way to sell someone another $5,000 bike yeah. or 10 or whatever you want to spend on it. Um, but all of these, I mean, it happens and happen in climbing. There's, you know, there's this reductionist sort of stuff that goes down into, you know, d develops into different, a whole bunch of different types of, you know, everyone's climbing. And as my friend Boone Speed said, it's happening in Harlem at the rock gym and it's happening on top of Mount Everest. It's all still climbing. And the, the fact that, um, you know, that, that gravel riding is getting more people excited about riding their bikes and then racing their bikes. I mean that, I, I don't know. One of the best experiences I've had actually racing my bike recently was at RPI last year and to go and, um, just to be, see how many see who shows up at something like that i mean and even people who are doing the stage the you know the three stage part of it of like it would never occur to that person to try and race it on the road yeah and I, there they are and they're welcome and they're having a good time and and it's pretty cool yeah, people may watch uh that that video and think oh that you know that seems a bit contrived you know like he was he was trying a little too hard to uh, be different or, you know, push this idea of, you know, cycling doesn't just have to be a, a road bike, you know, it can be a, a gravel bike. And it can I, be a mountain bike. It can be a BMX bike. It can yeah. Be a track bike. I mean, there's, well, the, the one I struggled with a couple of years ago was the e-bike. And, you know, I, at the end of the day, I, I love debating. So, you know, yeah. I, I could debate back and forth about it all day long and, this is and one certainly of the discussions we've had on our bike yeah, and, uh, yeah. on the island and you told him about my shoulder mounted emp device right yeah uh, uh no okay <laughs> <laughs> so all, all i'll say about e-bikes well i'll say two things because i i have a recent experience now but the i concluded that anything that gets more people out on bikes whether or not you want to count an e-bike as a bike is a different debate, but anything that gets more people out on bikes is still a net positive. So whether it's an e-bike, a gravel bike, a road bike, it's a bike. And, yeah. and that's, that's a win. You know, we can start slicing and dicing and getting into the details of which version's better, but it's still a win. And the second thing is, uh, you know, my dad's uh, an in-shape guy, but he doesn't train and he's uh, not a avid cyclist, I would say. Uh, and I, he finally came over to, to Girona to visit me where I live in Europe uh, during the season. And I, you know, I desperately wanted to show him where I spend all day, every day. You yeah. know, it's like taking your dad to your, your office and showing him where you work. Everybody wants to, to do that uh, on some level. And uh so i rented him an, an e-road bike 
and we did a five and a half hour ride together uh, to the coast and that was a super awesome experience uh, for me to be able to share that with my dad and that's that's a net positive well and i god damn how dare you provide a logical argument against <laughs> my anti-e-bike stance well and on that vein and and i know like i talked to i've talked to paul like i've been thinking about an e-bike because you know because you like setting strava records <laughs> jennifer and i don't do much together yeah you know and yeah. and i was like okay well that'd be kind of cool if we could like go on a bike ride and yeah i started talking to paul about yeah e-assist bikes that was the same with my wife i uh there's there's definitely um the, the ability to yeah to bring everyone to the same level there's there's definitely you know it's it's not any yeah. different than if i just set my brakes to rub and we went out and rode it, it just means i don't have to buy new brake pads <laughs> which, I which wish... he's done on rides that he's had to do before <laughs> True. With, with me yeah get his brake pads i wish if there was like some e-shoes that would allow me to go for a run with selena sometime that would be super cool but there's not so so you won't (laughs) so yeah unfortunately i was anti and and i've had a couple of stories like that or like jeremy jones after you know coming back from double tib fib and real and and realizing that he could as part of his rehab he couldn't ride his mountain bike every day um and so he'd have, you know, one day on the, on the regular bike would be his intensity day. And then he'd have like two volume days where he'd use an e-assist so he could spend longer and it wouldn't, and, and the pressure wouldn't be the same. And he felt like, you know, it helped him to recover his fitness and get back, you know, to be able to be the, you know, professional athlete that he used to be. And, um, like, more logic. God damn it. I just, you know, and, you can use forces for good or for evil. And, yes. you know, like if you're going to buy an e-bike because you're a super in-shape dude and you want to set your, you know, local hill climb record, that's not cool. But if you want to use it because you want to inspire a sense of adventure and, you know, maybe convince yourself that you can ride a little bit further, you know, like if you can go... 30 miles on your own, but now you can go 60, all of a sudden you can go to that next town and, and, or make that loop. And then you're more inclined to, to ride more or, or, or even just share something that you love doing with someone that you love to be with, but haven't, you know, in your case, your dad or, yeah. you know, maybe Jordan yeah. or, and they don't share that passion for suffering six hours a day on the bike every day. Yeah. Because <laughs> they don't have that amount of self-loathing exactly. in their DNA. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I had, so my, my thesis, um, I might have to post this video of me explaining this to Jason when he came by, but was that um, I would like to, you know, when those people get on their e-bikes way out into the desert, like where I don't think that they belong, yeah, I encourage on this weekend, it's going to be all e-bikes all the time on the white rim. And so when you get to that apex out there where it's just as far to go back as it is to go forward, that's when I trigger the EMP device and all the bikes have just become normal bikes, but heavier. Yeah. And then I'd kind of figure like if you make it back, then we fix your bike for you. If you don't, then I mean, don't get me I, wrong. I, I I'm you know like I'm used to being the king of my 
playground like on the island there's not any other world tour riders so normally i shouldn't be getting passed by bikes yeah. and when i get passed by a guy in jeans commuting to work uh i'm less than pleased <laughs> what what was the when, the when i actually had that conversation with the e-bike guy possibly yeah, possibly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there are a lot of cons, too. Like, for example, uh, you know, this bike that I rented for my dad, it's limited to 25k an hour. Okay. Which, uh, you know, we felt like it would have been a lot better experience overall if it had been like 28k an hour, which doesn't okay. seem like much. But then you got to remember, if you're going 25k an hour on a bike path, which is where many people yes, ride, would use the, uh, and you yeah. don't have the skills set to match the speed of your bike like there, there's a serious disconnect here you know and I, yeah. I have seen now a number of times out riding where people who clearly don't ride their bike very much don't have the skill set are riding e-bikes you know at twice the speed that they would normally be capable of riding and then when they make a mistake it, it's, it's a lot more painful and, yeah and they don't have the decision making experience to understand the fact that yeah what they're doing i mean you would yeah it i mean speed requires that you look further down the road and that takes a while to develop yeah like if i'm you know if i'm riding 15 miles an hour or whatever um then the the distance that the the speed with which things are coming at me or i'm getting you know going towards them is one thing and so I, i don't need to look you know 300 yards down the road i can be a little bit you know closer in but all of a sudden you catapult me to a much higher rate of speed, it'll take a while for my, you know, sensor you know, senses to adapt to that and, yeah, and to I mean, realize like, oh shit, when I, that thing's going to be on me. If if I blink right now, I'm going to be, you know, riding up the back end of that. Anytime that something assists you to that, you know, level you become desensitized to the, the costs, right? So for yeah. example, if you drive a car from the 1960s, you don't tailgate because you know how hard you have to push the brakes. You, you know how quickly you'll wear through those brake pads and how uh, much time it will take to brake yeah. because you don't have you know, power assist brakes. Yeah. And uh, the same is true. And you don't uh, have an over-the-shoulder seatbelt. Right, yeah. So, so you're terrified you of crashing. It, yeah, there's, no, there's not going to be an airbag or anything to and insulate the you same from. with bikes. You know, you learn when you don't have an e-assist bike, you, uh, you learn the cost of momentum, you know, how much it costs you to gain it and how much it hurts to lose it. And yeah. so you respect it in a way that you, you can't, yeah. if you haven't had that experience and that that's why i think most people are terrible at driving is they don't respect what it costs to to gain or or lose momentum and you know when it's just a matter of you know flexing your ankle it, it just doesn't and in a totally insulated environment right yeah too, devoid of the- road noise and everything else but there's also, you know, I, well, I, I guess the consequence increases with speed, but you you have a sense of being protected, I think, a little bit shielded from yeah, the world. So, so along with your EMP <laughs> idea, I'll throw another one out there. I think every modern car should be, uh, you know, encased in, in something structurally uh, 
impenetrable, you know, throw out bulletproof okay. uh, car type type situation, and then rigged with C4 explosives. So anytime you have an impact, the car just blows up, but it doesn't hurt anybody else because it's, you know, sort of bomb-proof from the outside. Okay. Uh, so any any minor accident means almost assured demise, destruction of both you and your vehicle. Think about how... People would behave so yeah, much differently. how differently everyone would drive knowing that, you know, that would be the consequence. That you'd be upside down on your payments should you still be alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and insurance wouldn't cover it if it was your fault. So that's my, like, that's my uh, crackpot theory. I, I think that's going to be a tough one to sell. <laughs> I think uh, even... See, I'm pretty sure the EMP device can be homemade. Somehow yeah, there's a yeah. recipe on the internet. But, yeah. uh, oh, well, my, my more practical <laughs> version was that the insurance companies should start uh, floating an app that you can choose to or choose not to download. But if you choose to and have it activated all the time, uh, you get half off your, your car insurance. And the app... Uh, disables all radio signals on your cell phone. So if you know if you're moving over, you know five miles an hour, your phone just doesn't work. So you can't use it when you're driving. Love that. And you know, throw in some other features. It can monitor, you know, uh, speeding, overly hard braking, those types of things. <laughs> I, I, apparently, there are some well, apps that do a like little bit of this now. Uh, animal on your lap. <laughs> while you're driving or or listening any, to to bad 90s music yeah, or any of the other things that people also do in a yeah. car that uh you know it disables what, the mirror what's the saying? there's an app the... for that <laughs> i'm sure the engineers will sort it out yeah, but there like there has to be light a off way on the to mirror voluntarily get people to make better decisions you know nobody yeah. you talk to goes yeah it's okay to text and drive they all go ah it's it's not safe but yeah i, I you know i do it i try not to the, what's that yeah like if everybody agrees that it's not a good idea it should be pretty simple to, to not do to not do it yeah because there are other things that are <laughs> you know good ideas that people volunteer i don't know what what mode why do people do things you know like what motivates them how do we like tempt them in is it does it just have to be you know greater convenience lower cost rewarded with money monetary with only gets you so far i think yeah it does work but it it just has a there's a, a dead cap. end cuz yeah. um because it'd be nice if people paid you know better attention when they were in their cars to um you know let's just say people that are riding bicycles well as soon as it's going to be a moot <laughs> point you know the computers are going to be driving the cars by the time you know my daughter's driving so i guess there's not much to get fussed about <sighs> You may be right, but couldn't I tell my car what to do then? Siri, hit that cyclist. <laughs> <laughs> Drive in a more aggressive manner. Please. I had a bad day at work. <laughs> that will be there's there's mood th mood options. Exactly. That'll be fantastic. But then your car will be a different color. It'll be yeah, like, like a mood, oh, yeah, like a mood, a mood, it's a mood uh, ring car. <laughs> mood uh, ring. Black car. Black car. <laughs> stay away. Stay away. White van. White van. <laughs> <laughs> study psychology more if i'm going to spend more of my life riding bikes on the road figure <laughs> out what makes people tick Oof. 
I do know that, you know, most of the time when uh, people are malicious, it's because they've got their own shit going on and we don't have good ways of expressing it. So we take it out on. Have you ever been with Joe on a ride when he's uh, gone kind of high order on someone? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I never have. I wonder what it's like. Yeah. I don't think you've ever seen me go like full DEFCON 1. I can think of a couple incidences. Well, you only get to go full depth on one if the guy actually pulls over. Right. So I guess that would be the limiting factor. Well, so this is an interesting thing because when Keel moved back to the island. Yeah. uh, And he hadn't been there very long. And we did a ride. We were riding to Hansville, actually. Mm Mm-hmm. And somebody did something, and it's uh, for me. It's always a I try to have a dimmer switch of like who I'm with. Yeah. And I was <laughs> like, okay. And you actually responded as I would have responded, but you responded much quicker than I would have. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I kind of know what the rules of engagement of yeah. this bike ride are going to be. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, okay, it's, it's all right. Like, it also, it's, I, I try to, like, it's interesting for me how your reactions and your, you know, theories about these things change over time, too. Yeah. Right? My, like, my, like, specifically, or? No, no, pe- people in general. I, oh, I'm yeah, actually yeah. referring to myself, I guess, yeah. in this situation. And I, there's more battles that I'm willing to not fight anymore, but when I am going to fight a battle, it will be to the death. (laughs) (laughs) And I, you know, having a daughter now, there's certain things that are not worth it to me anymore. You know, there's risks that I just am not going to take and fights that I'm not going to fight. But having a daughter also makes me more protective of uh, my well-being because you know i need oh, yeah. to be there to be gotta be around yeah to be there for her so uh i guess some of my habits around that have have shifted over time but i this is this is an interesting conversation that joe and i had recently a debate on the bike where i've started becoming or i've come to the conclusion that we need to to choose because I keep finding myself flip-flopping between two theories. Okay. And I feel like the, the right thing to do would be for us to choose uh, a set of rules. So if we want to hold cars accountable for their inappropriate behavior for risking, you know, our lives, that'd be drivers inside of cars. Let's not talk about inanimate objects. Let's talk about the operators. of. This is operators of um, being deadly weapons is what I like to refer to them as. And I wouldn't even necessarily go as far as to include the like inept oblivious driver, even though they can be oftentimes just as, if not more dangerous, but certainly we can isolate the uh, malicious driver, driver okay. with malicious intent. Yeah. Uh, if we want to be able to hold them 100% accountable, you know, hold them to a cross, then we, by uh, proclamation, must uh, hold ourselves to an incredibly high standard. So you can't, 
both blow the stop sign and flick off the car that passed you two feet away instead of three feet by law. It, it's got to be one way or the other. So okay. if we want to break all the rules, then we kind of have to turn a blind eye when the cars but the thing is, is that, break the rules. So I'm of a different opinion on this. And, and this is a working theory. I mean, like I, I haven't, I don't have a lot to back this up yet. This is just a working. We need Tim Johnson here right now because he's he's uh, pretty strong on this subject as well. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, so then Joe, like the occasional roll on the four way stop sign, it's different on Erickson and and Weaver or. Did I get my don't right? make it too specific. Anyway, when there's no cars there at all and you can clearly see and you're going like five miles an hour i don't have a problem with that yeah and i we're not like running willy-nilly through like red lights on 305 i i will try and summarize (laughs) your your argument and you can tell me if i'm wrong here but essentially your argument is that we're going to make choices that are safe because we want to keep ourselves like the only person getting injured in that situation if we blow a stop sign is us yes so we inherently have to make reasonable decisions when it comes to safety whereas cars can do both they can they can both make bad decisions and not risk their skin and and i definitely don't disagree uh it's it's like a I don't know. It's it's a. He's still formulating this. Yeah, I'm still it. formulating. It's but it's it, definitely. But more... I don't think it's the wrong, you know, thing to think about or even have this discussion and and um, because, like, so I go back to like, okay, what's the spirit of the stop sign? Well, this is an unsafe zone, and you should come to a complete stop and verify that it is safe to proceed before doing so. That to me is the spirit of the stop sign. If I can do that while I'm moving because I can see a long way in any direction. And because I also think it's more dangerous for me to, you know, or if it's an intersection where it's super dangerous for me to be stopped and have my foot down, where I'm more likely to get hit by, because- Right, yeah, I'm there's mo- certainly an argument to be made that there are intersections where me stopping is the most dangerous thing I can do. Yeah. I can't get across the intersection, you know, and within you, line of sight quick enough to guarantee my safety. To guarantee your safety. And you are more visible to drivers if you are moving. Because right. our eyes are, are, you know, are tuned to catch movement where we don't see things that are stopped. And so, you know, I got my foot down in the, you know, the, the intersection. I think to get your driver's license, you should have to do all the above. You should have to ride a motorcycle. You should have to ride a bike for, a, you know, I don't know, a week, a month, some amount of time so that you, you understand what perspective. You're, yeah, you're, what you're interacting with. And that, maybe, Joe, maybe the solution to my... The theory maybe it should be amended to when on the island <laughs> abide all rules uh since the majority of the drivers are are quite um so amicable I'm, I'm gonna tell you a little story from from last week that you're gonna <laughs> enjoy so i was on a ride on the island i'm gonna try to abbreviate it as much as possible on a ride on the island went through downtown winslow on the way home, rolled the three-way stop on Erickson, made the left turn, looked behind me, Bainbridge Island PD. Now, on this ride previously, I had had some, let's say, unpleasant experiences with 
other motor vehicles on the island, which encompassed a vehicle trying to pass me on a blind hill curve, how things are on the island. Uh, also, one of the now numerous um, dump trucks uh, that are the dualies that are mm. on 305 that came way too close. Uh, a Kitsap Transit bus, which we now love, <laughs> love to cross over the fog line. Yeah. All of these things. And like I was done. Yeah. yeah. Bainbridge Island officer pulls me over. Let's just say I was not amenable to what he had to say. And did he did he start off by asking you, do you know why I pulled you over? Oh, yeah. They always start with that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I looked at him and I'm like, seriously, like you're giving me a hard time about that when this is what I have to deal with. And at the end of the day. You know, yeah, he doesn't know about all this other stuff. Right. But my point to him was that, hey, man, there's no cars here. It's a three-way stop. This is what I do for a living. I can see what's going on. I was going literally four miles an hour. That's a little bit of a don't-you-know-who-I-am argument. I understand that. (laughs) I was in no mood. Yeah, the problem is... I was in no mood. So, let me finish. So, this interaction goes on. We actually ended up shaking hands. Right? I get home... I tell Jennifer the story. I think more on it. I get in the shower and I'm like, I was kind of an asshole. I'm thinking, I'm not helping my cause here. Mm. And I said to Jennifer, I'm like, I almost feel like going down and apologizing to that guy. I didn't. However, the next day, (laughs) the next day, there was some police presence on Moji Lane. That's right. Ooh. There were three Baybridge Island police Whoa. cars. Oh, that's all of them. <laughs> by the way, for those who are not from the island. <laughs> Let's just say they were serving some papers to a neighbor. And I walked out of my garage and I was in a good mood this this day. And then I just, one of the guys, I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, kind of walked out and he's like, ah, oh, we're just serving some papers. And okay. And then, and I started walking back to the house and then I'm like, so two of the cars left and I quickly went back and I said, Hey, uh, is there, is there a guy, uh, an officer, uh, Bill something or other that was working last night, uh, in the evening around 6 PM. Oh yeah. That's Sergeant so-and-so. Oh, okay. He's like, he's not on today. I'm like, Hey, can you do me a favor? What's that? I want to apologize to him because I was kind of a dick. And he kind of like, he laughed and I'm like, well, I was a kind of a dick. I was a dick. (laughs) And I kind of feel kind of bad about it after thinking about it. And I just, just tell him that the guy that he stopped on the bike, rolling the stop sign, apologized for being an asshole. And he just started laughing. He's like, I'm going to see him tonight. I will definitely tell him that (laughs) because we... We don't get this very often. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this this is a perfect example of why I think we need, even if my set of rules I've come up with, you know, the working theory is not the right set of rules. It's why we need a set of rules uh, is because 
our actions, our choices shouldn't be dependent on our mood, even if that mood is yeah. caused by, you know, things that are directly related to the set of rules. Yeah. You know, like there, I, I can't make an argument of why you should have to stop that stop sign. If your life was endangered six times on that ride by people who are being assholes. I can't, there's no good reason for you to have to stop at that stop sign if you don't want to, because no one else is following the rules when it comes to your safety. Why should you care about what you're not, you're not even worrying about their safety. You're not going to injure the car. Yeah. You're just worried about upsetting them because they saw you roll the stop sign. Right. Which is ridiculous. And the only th reason they're upset is because they themselves are not willing. And right. you're an outlaw and they don't like yeah. that being sh shoved in yeah. their face. They're like, yeah. hey. But they don't know the trade-off is that I risk nine of my lives every time I, I go out on the bike. Go so, out, yeah. You know, I, and to go on your, okay, maybe they're the outlaw that is out there driving their car while texting. I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. But, but it's what not, they're it's doing not is going to have perceived as right. yeah, and, and that's, that's the whole the, problem. And that's what that's my thing, right? Is the perception. And I can't disagree with you, but I do think there's something to the idea that if we have a a set of guidelines or principles that we run on, generally, but that are that are not developed by motor vehicle law. Right, right. They just have right, to be they, consistent. They just have to whatever it is has to be. So consistent. this way, I can you know I have my principles. <laughs> And then I could be fighting for my principles, not for my life. And that'd be totally different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could write that on my gravestone. Had, had his principles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I first came to Utah and started riding a lot and I'd ride out, you know, some out East here and I'd be like, just oftentimes be the only dude on a bike. And Hey, if it's a Friday afternoon and people are, you know, dragging their, off-road vehicles on the trailers that stick out further than mm -hmm. the truck and the da-da-da, and then I'm in their way because they need to get to the place faster than I'm, you know, because it is a blind corner. They're not willing to pass on it, so they have to slow down for me, and then or they get too close and this and that, and I had a couple altercations, and it's like, fuck it, and I started carrying a gun. And did that for a while, and um, I don't know, maybe, maybe it would... You know, they'd see it printing in my jersey. I don't know, <laughs> um, but... You know, altercations went away for a while. You know what else? And, Sorry. And and then I realized, like, fuck. If I, the next when I I'm just gonna break my pelvis if I crash for sure because it's right in the perfect spot for that. Um, and and then I kind of and then like it wasn't like I didn't have an, a, enough aggressive encounters to merit that. And so I stopped. And but I still get, but it made sense to me at the time that you are assaulting me with a deadly weapon. I'm going to defend myself with a deadly weapon and I should be fully in the right actually to defend myself in that way. Should it come to that? Should I not be, you know, face down in the ditch with, you know, punctured lung and, you know, all my ribs broken, um, yeah. you know, or, you know, even able to, I mean, it's, 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 it's an illusion and a fantasy that, you know, anything good is going to come out of that idea. Um, but it it just like people don't understand that in a in in the motor vehicle cyclist relationship that the driver of the car or truck or whatever is operating a deadly weapon and if an officer a police officer is able to you know shoot someone who's you know assaulting them with their motor vehicle personally I think a cyclist should be the same as long as it's you know you'd have to have some pretty 
you know, serious milestones that get hit before um, that can can happen. It can't just be like the oblivious person. But yeah, I mean, you know, one or, of the things I've realized is so much of it is subconscious and people are mostly wrapped up in their own universe. And uh, so I ride now in a neon jersey. Okay. Uh, our, our team for the last couple of years has had a, a slogan be safe be seen um tracked it a lot of daytime uh, daytime lights also and date and that's the second thing is daytime running lights yeah and i notice a significant difference probably roughly equal to what you did uh just from having those running lights yeah which means that people aren't actually trying to endanger my life they're just that oblivious they're just not paying they're just in their own world and then uh, if I want yet more room, all I have to do is ride with my daughter's seat on the back of my bike. She doesn't even have to be in it. If, this, if the seat's there, now I'm treated like a king. Nobody comes close to me. This so that, that, that the- I mean, that's that, it, it's a total. It's to, it's a totally frustrating phenomenon because it means that people are detaching the idea that I'm a human. Until, Whereas if you until, were yeah. if you were a postal truck or a school bus or a tractor or a Prius or anything else that's like holding up traffic, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, but just because you're a person riding a an adult riding a bicycle, there's must be something wrong with that. Yeah. <laughs> Too many yeah. DUIs. Yeah. Oh that's man. Only, oh no. Oh, no his did, handlebars are upturned. But <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There's something wrong. <laughs> and yeah, he like, must not have paid yeah. his road taxes. <laughs> <laughs> but it also or, does mean that uh, when we start making these rules of engagement, we have to account for the fact that most of these actions are subconscious. Yeah. So if you go at it, you know, with the assumption that these people are making conscious decisions, you know, to get you, uh, then, missed, then you're never going to have miss that. something. Yeah. Then, then you are going to go yeah. into the encounter um, with a certain intent or with a certain attitude yeah. because you believe that it was malicious when they were just, right. you know, like fuck I'm late to pick yeah. up my daughter at school you know or whatever and that's what they're you can it, almost always tell though the ones that are malicious because they're the ones that have the reaction in the mirror yeah when right. you have the yeah. reaction to them because yeah. that means that they were looking they were waiting they were looking for a reaction and when you get that reaction you yeah. know yeah you yeah. I would say I would say 95% of the time they did that on purpose and that's the people that i have a problem with yeah, no oh, i i you know i agree it's the people that threw the beer bottle at my face when i was an 18 year old on you a know, bike and on riding mighty my business riding out to a bike yeah. race like it's people like that i um sorry I, tim johnson made actually the the uh, the argument for daytime running lights when we recorded with him a podcast with him and Payson last year and i to me it makes sense it's it's cheap. You know, it's easy, and I, I'm amazed at how much difference it makes. Yeah. I, I really, I'm I'm super surprised. That, you know, Trek did a lot of, um, well, I guess they didn't do the research. They uh, they worked with a university who did did the research on their behalf. Okay, and they looked at certain flash patterns, a certain number of lumens, and a, a, you know, a bunch of different factors, and uh, the the amount of extra room I'm given just for switching those lights on and riding in a neon yellow jersey is is pretty astounding and i um 
I actually have gotten in the habit now of, you know, if I'm riding with, especially a, a younger kid, you know, if I meet someone out on the road or, yeah. you know, a younger guy aspiring to be pro, I always give him my light. And, uh, the, the folks at Trek said to us, you know, if you're ever out riding with someone, they don't have a light, you know, here's an email, they can send an email and we'll, we'll send them a set of lights. So it's, it's a big, that's a, big, so that's a big push on, yeah. on, you know, being supported yeah. by the industry. That's yeah. pretty that's that's cool. outstanding. Yeah. 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 From an industry that wants to see, you know, more people on bikes. And, yeah. And be safer yeah. on bikes and <laughs> wrapping up. Righteous. I guess. I mean, I was that the, that's the gesture. Yeah. I gotta, yeah. I gotta go wake <laughs> up my daughter. Yeah. Cause she's been sleeping she, for like three hours. Cause if she sleeps too much, <laughs> you'll, she sleeps you too won't. much. It means I won't tonight. You won't be. Yeah, exactly. I understand. Um, thanks for, sitting down with us yeah and, definitely a pleasure uh and, and thank you joe for uh organizing this because I, mean, I mean any perspectives that i can have from you know people who are not only you know active in at, at a high level in sport but also thinkers is uh it's a it's a good day for me well you know it's just cycling it doesn't just because you're a thinker doesn't make you uh intelligent but good, when you have five or six hours a day to kill on a bicycle uh, you know, oftentimes with one other person or on your own, you do think a lot, <laughs> whether those thoughts are worth anything is a different subject matter. And, and we know if you're with Joe, so I found the key. If you want to get, Oh no, <laughs> go on. You won't need this, but I'm any of my other friends who go riding with Joe and they need a free ride back home someday with Joe on the front, just like hate pedaling. Just get him talking about Mitch McConnell before that, that, you know, before he takes his turn in the front so I, and you will just get dragged along at speeds heretofore unavailable to you. I, I can actually one up that. I told my non-American director uh, at a race last year, I said, listen, like if I'm riding and the pace isn't high enough, if the brake's not coming back whatever i think my my job that day was just yeah. to ride the front and bring the back brake back and i said if it's if it's not coming down quick enough i just need you to go on the radio and and tell me how great trump is and just start <laughs> just start giving just all the rhetoric you can think of throw it out there and in fact I'll send me a faster. tweet <laughs> yeah just just start talking about all of his amazing accomplishments and, policy yeah and uh and the the, yeah. the super divisive spirit that he's, you know, plugged yeah. into the American psyche. Just yeah, like why want, love one another when you can hate one another? Exactly. It's so much. So we started yeah. with religion and we're ending yeah. on politics. <laughs> and Two things you're supposedly not. <laughs> it's great. Well, we're not trying to get more listeners, so it's okay. <laughs> um. Thank you, Kale. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks thanks for it. That was fun. Have fun at Kanza. Yeah. I, uh, like I said, I expect to be uh, humbled and, um, and to learn something. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again.